Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty Spotlight Interviews. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. Each week, these interviews provide you with the insights from a different perspective of Business Fight Poverty Network, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are working on some of the world's biggest social challenges. I am sitting in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. There is news everywhere about the impacts on factory workers in emerging markets. But I wanted to hear firsthand what this really means in practical terms for business and their workers now and in the future. Meet Dominic McVeigh. His work with apparel companies normally takes him to Sri Lanka, Ethiopia and Kenya. The garment manufacturer he was on the board of until earlier this year employs almost 15,000 people and generates in excess of 200 million US dollars in revenues. Dominic's CV includes non-executive directorships and special advisors to a number of other ethical apparel organisations. He has recently been appointed board member of the Overseas Development Institute, amongst other things. And today, Dominic talks about trade conditions, the COVID-19 pandemic, and what recovery and rebuilding will really take. Dominic, welcome. Hi, Katie. Thank you for having me. Dominic, you work deep in supply chains, both in garment manufacturing and also helping to get goods to market. What is it like on the ground with COVID-19? Perhaps could you paint us a picture of what's going on at the moment? Well, a lot of factories have or are laying off workers. Buyers aren't paying or trying to defer orders. There's no certainty of when orders may start to come again, even when there are buyers that are committed to honouring their legal obligations. We don't know if those buyers will be in business in the future. Many factories are having to, where possible, switch their production and start thinking about PPE. As Particularly in the garment sector, those skills may be similar, but there's also a lot of learning to go through in terms of regulation, uh, the standards, who are the potential buyers. So there's a lot of scrambling around of trying to understand what the opportunities are in PPE. Are factories too late to the game? We have a lot of uh, informal workers out of jobs, particularly in places such as sub-Saharan Africa. My work is mainly focused on East Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya, but I also have a presence in manufacturing in in Ghana. Uh, And the story is very similar from East to West across the sub-Saharan continent. The key issue is to ensure where factories are able to repurpose is that the production does meet the standards demanded internationally and organisations are having to work with businesses to really help them understand. And there are some great ones that have stepped forward, like Trademark East Africa, who are also able to buy domestically. So it's not just about countries scrambling for the cheapest products out of China. They have to think much more long-term about how they procure their PPE and how that could support economies domestically. And we also have to think about the logistics because not everything is available in country. So if we are focused on a repurposing of a, of a factory, the raw materials may not be available domestically to manufacture the finished goods. And logistics are massively interrupted. There are major challenges in getting raw materials in. And on the wider conversation, there are major challenges getting food and grain to move, seed to move, uh, fertilizer. So factories are not necessarily at the top of the list in those priorities. So it's critical to ensure that logistics and trucking companies can continue 
to operate in Africa and that goods can move across borders. And we need to see how we can create the ongoing concept. And I talk about ongoing because this isn't a concept that will be going away anytime soon of safe trade to ensure that goods can move safely and that drivers are not vectors of infection. And also making sure where we work in countries or I'm invested in countries that potentially landlocked or not potentially are landlocked like Ethiopia. How do you ensure that cross-border trade is still moving when countries uh, are very much stopping or have completely ceased to allow foreigners to to, to enter, even if it is part of a supply chain? And a lot of conversations having to be worked through there and helping countries understand the needs of business and how those businesses can play back into the results that are required. And of course, there are challenges around costs, costs of goods, availability of funding, uh, working capital, banking facilities. In some countries like Sri Lanka, for example, you're not allowed to lay off workers. You're not allowed to furlough. So factories are having to keep stuff fully paid. Now, that is fantastic. But when the factories are not being paid by their customers, it's very, very difficult to keep several thousand people employed for what could be several months whilst there is no income being generated. So there needs to be a lot thought about what can be done through the donor agencies and the richer governments, what they can do to support the poorer countries and their supply chains. Because if that doesn't happen, we will see products dry up back into the West when economies open up again. And you'll see hyperinflation to some degree around products because the workforces won't be there, the factories won't be there. There'll be millions of people still out of jobs without jobs to go back to because the factories wouldn't have been able to be, keep maintaining paying for staff when they're not getting paid. And there'll be a major shortage in supply chains. So it all has major knock-on effects. And this has to be considered at every step we take here in, I'm based in London, in, in the developed world, and, and what that means for the developing world. And the, res- the massive responsibility we need to acknowledge and, and carry forward and look at solutions, because it is very tough on the ground. It's going to get tougher. And it's not going to help the recovery globally. We, we need everyone needs to survive this for, for us to, to move forward through COVID-19. Dominic, and, and what do your days look like at the moment? Things are very challenging because we don't have a consistency of answer. And what I mean by that, when businesses know what they're faced with, they, they can prepare. With COVID, we have not been able to prepare. It's not clear what support governments are providing. It's not clear what position the customers may be in. So you're constantly second-guessing. Where factories that I'm involved with have been able to repurpose, we have been able to drive results and work with partners and customers uh, to get a better understanding. But to be fair to the customers, they themselves don't know where things stand. They don't know when their economies will be opening back up. They don't know when customers will be coming through the door. So there's a lot of full leadership that needs to to come into play and then executing but executing with a difference every strategy that is deployed today needs to be adaptable for tomorrow because we do not know what is going to be happening so i spend a lot of my time reading as much information as possible drawing upon information and, and, and research from various organizations trying to see See how trade is flowing, where trade has ceased up, uh, studying where the the businesses are collapsing and what impact that might have further down the chain. 
and also thinking about what businesses look like in the future, how the playing field has been leveled. I've got a lot of countries I work in, and I don't just work with businesses, I work with charities and NGOs and governments. So I'm in a unique position where I have a lot of information available to me and on-ground knowledge across three or four continents and, and several countries. And that's allowing me to draw that knowledge and, and pass it forwards to help other countries and other businesses be more prepared and understand what's working in one country and can be a solution in another. Also, what is working in one country but will not translate to another country. And because I've got the teams on the ground and very talented men and women able to feedback what is happening, what is going on, I, I'm uniquely positioned to, to help businesses and governments and my own businesses that I sit on the boards of to better understand what is really happening and not what is just being uh, reported secondhand. So I'm just trying to gather as much knowledge and information at, at all times throughout the day, dissect that and, and help others in my teams and my networks to prepare what that means and really grasp with the fact that the new normal we, we cannot yet describe what that may be, and it will be evolving. And something I've always lived by is that the only constant is change. What COVID-19 has done has uh, propelled any change to be far quicker. And businesses that have not been changing or do not have systems that are robust enough to allow for change are the businesses that we are seeing failing. And quite frankly, those businesses should have changed a long time ago. And their demise has only just been sped up by COVID-19. I don't think it has been created by COVID-19. There's a lot of opportunity now. And there's a lot of CEOs going to be sitting and thinking about, is it possible to do what is next? Or have we come to the end of the business model that we have created? Um, so a lot of challenges to think about. And information is key, key at the moment. So I spend a lot of my time thinking about what can be done. What are your top recommendations for what businesses can do now to help support the supply chains, manufacturers, and ultimately the workers within them? Well, firstly, everyone needs to think about repurposing their business, whether they are in manufacturing. So if you're manufacturing, you need to repurpose your production. Where is the demand moving to? What are the essentials? Because for the foreseeable future, the key purchases of businesses and organisations and individuals is going to be essentials. We're not going to be running out tomorrow buying Ferraris, and we're certainly not necessarily going to run out and buy a new wardrobe, although a lot of uh, high street retailers are hoping that's top of people's lists. So businesses really need to think about how they can repurpose, repurpose production, and repurpose th their organisations with a, a spring in their step, a, a goal, a, a, a strategy, repurpose with meaning and translate that meaning through to, to your potential customers, your suppliers, the consumers, so that they feel part of the, the bounce back and can really understand the business. Organisations, businesses need to continue to work with their current supply chains. It's, today is not about finding the best deal or jumping ship. It's about supporting those that you've been working with, trying to build on those relationships and helping the businesses that you work with, the suppliers that you work with, the customers that you work with, work with, repurpose. And actually think about maximizing your local content. If you are in the UK, what can you do in the UK? What can you buy in the UK? What can you manufacture? What can you supply? Because trade is very difficult. The cost of air freight, 
has shot up in certain instances to almost $15 a kilo. I don't know where it stands today, but I, I know a few weeks ago we were looking at goods costing $15 a kilo to air freight when previously it might have been as little as $1 to $2. So we, we do need to think about what we can do locally as well. And also we've got to support the worker wages as much as possible. Look at shift and partial wage payments for as long as possible in line with the cash that is available. It's clear that cash flows are going to be significantly impacted. People's balance sheets are going to start eroding. But our, our, our colleagues are also our customers. We work in a, a, a secular economy. So if my staff leave, uh, that means they can't shop at the next on the high street who actually might be my customer. So we've got to, wherever we can play our part, we've got to keep people in jobs for as long as possible so that people can keep spending with one company who then can keep paying their workers, who can then spend with the next company. And eventually it comes back. I mean, I'm speaking very holistically now, but we all have to play our part in keeping the economy going as much as possible. And that, that will pay back to any organisation that, that, and business that can do that. And what are the practical steps for rebuilding these supply chains while supporting those most vulnerable? Well, we need to agree trade protocols for safe trade zones. And this way we can ensure that trade can continue, particularly if we're looking at informal traders in Africa. We have to remember there's almost 150 million informal traders in the sub-Saharan African continent. These are individuals who, if they do not sell product today, they will not eat tomorrow. So we need to create an operational set of safety protocols around social distancing, we need to think about market layouts. Are masks appropriate? Are gloves appropriate? Is hand sanitizer available where washing stations may not be? Because we must remember, in England, it's very easy to say, wash your hands six times a day and sing happy birthday. But I work in countries where water is not available. Even in the most developed economies in sub-Saharan Africa, let's look at the, the Western Cape. They have a huge water drought. The, uh, some of the the suburbs there do not have access to water. So we need to think about how we can provide a safe trade environment for individuals. And also the food safety that comes with that, because if we can't trade safely, how are we going to get food and produce to move? And I know this is being piloted at several border markets, um, organisations who I've touched upon before, Trademark East Africa, are really leading the charge on this. And every business needs to play their part in thinking about how they can trade safely, how they can make sure their workers can come to work safely. And also, we should be thinking about as much as possible the contactless future in business. And that is really moving away from cash. It's possibly not even tapping your card. How can I pay you from a two meter distance, for example? How can I be in a and how can I go into business without having to touch anyone? Because it's not practical, I think, long-term to think that masks are going to be always readily available. Gloves are always going to be readily available. Let's remember, these masks can cost several dollars, even on the cheaper end of the spectrum. And the day traders might be lucky if they're earning two or three dollars. And a mask might not last longer than 20 minutes in certain circumstances. We don't know how long a mask can last. And there's also no point saying to a day trader, wear rubber gloves if they're just going to keep wiping their faces, uh, touching their noses, even you know preparing their foods with the gloves, and then coming along and shaking your hand with gloves on, and then you start touching your face. So it's a lot to be thought about about contactless trade. 
And the other thing that we need to think about is buyers will not be traveling. And for example, let's take Tesco's. I can't imagine that the buyer of oranges at Tesco's or the buyer of bananas is going to be getting on a plane to Kenya to start looking at produce. They're not going to be getting on a plane to Ethiopia to start considering coffee beans. So we're going to move away from the contact of trade and the relationships that we often relied upon building to secure business. But this poses a huge opportunity. And I'd like to talk more about how we level the playing field now. We've leveled the playing field because if we can give access to a small farmer, a small coffee farmer in Ethiopia, who never got a look in to sell to Tesco's, if we could put him on the same digital platform as a major coffee producer, uh, say an internationally owned coffee producer in Ethiopia, if we could put him on the same buying platform as that producer, he now has a level playing field and even access to that buyer at Tesco's, for example. And this is where the supply chains can change. This is where we can actually start to produce huge opportunities for those that never had access because farmer A, who is a small holder of coffee uh, plantation in Ethiopia, could never possibly even get a visa to the UK to visit Tesco's, maybe doesn't uh, read and write in English to communicate with Tesco's, was always just relying on someone turning up at harvest and taking his beans. We can now put him on a platform in his local language and put him directly in contact with Tesco's and through digital uh, contracts and ledgers, we can trace the ethics and the procedures and the certification of that coffee farmer. So that someone like Tesco's has the confidence that the coffee beans they are buying are the coffee beans that they're being told they're buying. This is where things are going to change massively. This is where there's huge opportunity. Is there a way to rebuild better than before? I mean, is there practical steps that businesses should be thinking about or taking? The crisis has really made us understand the important role that e-commerce makes. And particularly in Africa, I think we need to make sure that goods can move via the internet. Because at the moment, we have to remember the volume of this type of trade is only 2% in Africa versus 60% of retail trade in developed countries. Now, if it wasn't for digital platforms like Zoom, we would grind to a halt here in the UK. If it wasn't for email, we wouldn't be communicating. There's a lot of countries that are not at the level that we're at, so they can't even start to think about competing. We have to make sure that the the difference e-commerce makes will need to be done with including smaller businesses in mind. We have to think about how we support smaller businesses in the developing world, because at the moment, it's very easy for you and I or a sole trader here in, in Europe, in London, to get up and running with Zoom maybe start a Shopify website or get on eBay and start selling product. It is not the same case in developing countries. These individuals are just as entrepreneurial as, as, as the best of us in Britain, but they don't have the same access to opportunities. So we, we need to be thinking about how we can include smaller businesses so that we can rebuild better than before. Also, in terms of climate change, there's going to be a clear opportunity for trade to happen in a different way. Bear in mind a carbon neutral approach. And we need to recognise the way that transport can be cut down. So we're starting to see how goods are moving less, but how can we 
long-term cut transport down and ways of working be more digitally focused in that respect as well. And this links to my point on e-commerce and greater access to affordable mobile internet. It is a massive win-win if we can overcome affordable mobile internet, particularly in places like Africa. The opportunities are huge and growth in Africa is amongst the fastest growing markets in the world. So I'd really like to think about how we can make internet more affordable for, for markets where it's cost prohibitive. I'd like us, if we're thinking about building better, how we can how we can take the examples we've learned through, through the corona crisis to uh, continue to reduce our need on physical transport and movement to cut down carbons. And we must remember about how we include smaller businesses in all of these changes. What would be your call to action to those listening to this podcast today? Look, there's, this is a really tough question because there's so many things that need to change in this world but we can't tackle them all at once. But if we, as individuals, if you're sitting in a boardroom and having to make a decision, look beyond the numbers, look beyond the spreadsheets, understand that just because you feed your workers, it may look as a cost. It's actually make, you're doing the right thing, but not only that, it's creating productivity that you can't measure on a spreadsheet. So really think about the inputs that you're thinking about pulling out of your business, which have direct impacts on individuals, planet and environment, just because you can't quantify the result doesn't mean it's not driving or delivering change. Those of the people that are listening that are working in the sustainability world, please do everything you can to get your buyers, and your marketing team to actually understand what sustainability is. And look, start thinking about the compassionate elements of your business and and how you operate. And what I say to everyone today is just because it is legal doesn't mean it is right. And one day, as we come out of COVID-19, we're going to look at those businesses that did the right things and those businesses that did the wrong things. And I suspect we will look at what they did wrong, how that impacted people, and we will start to change laws to make sure it's not done again. So just because it is legal doesn't mean it's right and it doesn't mean it's going to be legal forever. So you need to change those practices because people are watching to see who is doing right and wrong today. And ultimately, doing good is good business. Dominic, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 